Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. To kick off 2012, Naked Oceans is taking to the skies to explore the world of seabirds. They may not have gills, and only some of them have flippers, but there are masses of our feathered friends that live some or all of their lives at sea. We'll be looking at the threats they face today and find out about a new network of conservation areas around the world aimed at protecting them both in coastal areas and out in the high seas. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Carster-Perry. Hello, We'll also be giving a rundown of the latest ocean science and conservation news headlines. And in another episode of Critter of the Month, we ask an oceans expert if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. You can actually see the waves of colour moving along the sides of their bodies. And it looks like there's just all of this emotion running over the surface of this organism. Keep listening to find out who that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us and follow us at Naked Oceans, or you can email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans, on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castor-Perry and me, Helen Scales. This month we're talking about seabirds. Later in the show we'll catch up with the magnificent species that glide through the skies on the world's largest living wings and we find out how fisheries are affecting its population on a sub-Antarctic island. But first, to get the bigger picture of threats to seabirds and efforts underway to protect them, I spoke with Ben Lassels from BirdLife International, whose headquarters are here in Cambridge. He's been working on a global initiative to set up a network of conservation zones called Important Bird Areas, or IBAs. These have been around for a while on land, but now they're being moved offshore to protect those birds that spend time at sea. I caught up with Ben in a coffee shop in Cambridge. So um, Ben, birds are notoriously mobile. How can a fixed protected area actually um, contribute to to protecting them at a global scale? What sort of things go on inside these areas? Presumably this is places where they breed, where they feed, that sort of thing? Yeah, so there's really kind of four types of site that we feel are suitable for site-based conservation approaches. So those are areas around the breeding colony where birds feed or roost, non-breeding areas where they might congregate in coastal zones, uh, migration bottlenecks, and then pelagic feeding areas around things like seamounts, upwellings, uh, all that kind of stuff. Presumably there are an awful lot of marine species that you know, use the ocean for some or part of, mm-hmm. of their lifespans. I mean, are we talking hundreds of species, thousands of species? So we have a list of about 350 species that rely on the marine environment for at least part of the year. Some of those are true seabirds that people think of, like penguins and albatrosses. 
uh, but there are a number of other more coastal species, things like terns and cormorants, uh, that also might be suitable for this kind of approach. And, and what sort of threats are we talking about? Probably the biggest is bycatch, incidental bycatch from fisheries activities. Uh, Longline fishing is particularly bad for that and can kill hundreds of thousands of seabirds a year. So we really feel these sites can help inform where bycatch management can, can be used. The work we're doing can also inform other ocean user groups, things like uh, offshore wind farms can be particularly bad for some species, oil and gas exploration development, um, management of oil spills. There's a whole range of things that either cause direct mortality to seabirds or have incidental secondary effects. One of the challenges is to try and convince people that there are lots of birds in a particular location now, that they'll be there next year or the year after. And for some places that's relatively easy when you've got some kind of static feature like a seamount. But in other cases that's quite hard where you have moving frontal zones or upwelling systems uh, that can be seasonal or vary annually. And I've got to assume that by, by um, taking on the marine realm, you're introducing a whole new set of challenges to, to doing this kind of approach to conservation. Um, and what are some of those things that you've had to deal with? One of the biggest challenges is data. The oceans are so vast that having useful data to, to analyse, to come up with these sites in a consistent and defensible way is quite a challenge. Defining boundaries is very difficult because in terrestrial environments where a forest ends and a road begins is usually pretty obvious, um, but we don't have that luxury in the marine environment. So basing it on lines of latitude, longitude, bathymetry, that kind of thing, you need to use some slightly different approaches to to come up with sites. So I'd say those are the two main challenges, really. And are you going out um, taking new data or is is the idea really to make use of what's already out there? Well, very much to try and pull together what already exists so we can make a good first cut of, of the sites. And we really rely on three or four types of data, so satellite tracking data being a key one for us, uh, at-sea survey data from boats and planes, uh, and then coastal counts can be useful as well, and there's new advances in things like radar that can be used to, to identify where birds are and, and in what numbers. So you've got this idea of gathering data together to find out parts of the ocean that birds use. Mm-hmm. And the, the important bird areas are going to become a sort of a network, is that right? You're looking at, um, uh, at establishing a global, mm-hmm. um, a global system for protecting seabirds. Is there a sort of a goal in terms of the area you want to cover? Or how do you decide this is going to do the job we want it to do? I don't think we have a sort of overall percentage that we're aiming for. We're more keen to ensure that sites are located in the right places to protect the right things so really we're letting the data tell us where sites should be how big they should be so that we can build up some good justification for them and then once we have a sort of complete network for species um, and regions we should be in a position then to see what percentage overall that is. I guess the question then becomes once you've identified this network how do we then go about implementing that and putting in conservation measures what sort of things can we do um, to protect these birds Mm -hmm. one of the key things we're trying to do having identified sites is link to relevant policy mechanisms like the cbd the convention on biological diversity or relevant regional 
agreements, uh, things like in the Northeast Atlantic, we have the OSPAR Convention. Uh, elsewhere in the world, there are things like the Nairobi Convention for the Indian Ocean, ASEAN Agreement for Southeast Asia, and there are a number of others around the world. So we're trying to build the capacity of our BirdLife partners to engage in these kind of agreements and put forward a, a network of sites that we feel are robust and have lots of support as to why they're important, and also make the point that seabirds occur in areas used by lots of other marine biodiversity, things like seamounts, upwellings, continental shelf, all those kind of things and birds at the top of the food chain, you can really use them as indicators of, of the state of the marine environment more generally. Fantastic. And, and where are we at with this whole process of putting important bird areas into the sea? Um, are there any that have already been set up, or, or is this something that's about to happen and, and we'll see it in, in the coming years? So I think the first attempts uh, were probably done getting on for 10 years ago now, but really BirdLife has only had a coordinated approach through this for the last five or six years. So there are now several national inventories of marine IBAs. Some of the first were uh, in Alaska, the Baltic, um, and Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. Uh, and we hope to launch later this year our first global inventory of marine IBAs um, to launch that at the next conference of the parties of the Convention on Biological Diversity in October 2012. And are there any examples of a site that you've looked at or um, that's, you know, it's jumped out as being obviously a very important site for birds i mean are there any that are just spectacular places you've seen yourself that just makes you think this this has got to be protected well i mean there's certainly lots of the major currents of the world so the benguela the agulas the humboldt currents um california currents long recognized as being key places for breeding seabirds and and during the non-breeding season i've been to the humboldt a couple of times and done boat trips out there and the, the scale and the sheer number of birds and, and right whales and things like that, you know, is, is, is staggering. The only place that I've had a similar experience is further north, but um, in California and Monterey, mm-hmm. and I did once have a day out at sea when mm-hmm. one of those kind of bait balls, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of dolphins and whales and seabirds, and you're just in the middle of it all, yeah. and it's just spectacular. It's yeah. just Well, I think everyone should try and see that at least once in their lives. I mean, that's an amazing event and I don't think would leave anyone in any doubt that something has to be done to manage and protect these places in a sustainable way. That was Ben Lassels from the Global Seabird Programme at BirdLife International talking about his work on a new generation of conservation areas designed specifically to protect seabirds. Well, that first global list of important bird areas in the marine realm will be coming out later this year, so we'll be keeping an eye out for that. Okay, well, let's take a quick break from seabirds and dip our toes into the latest ocean science headlines. Helen, what have you got for us this month? Well, first up, I've got a new study that's uncovered the important role that the Humboldt sea cucumbers play in the balance of coral reefs, because it turns out that their acidic gastric emissions cause coral reefs to dissolve. Researchers on One Tree Island on Australia's Great Barrier Reef originally made measurements of seawater that showed that during the night, a significant portion of the coral reef dissolved away. And they didn't know why. But they did notice that there were a lot of sea cucumbers hanging around in the area, and they wondered if maybe they were to blame. Well, in the tropics, these unprepossessing tubular relatives of starfish and sea urchins spend much of their lives laying around on the seabed, acting like living vacuum cleaners. They slurp up mouthfuls of sand and coral rubble and squirt it out from the other end as piles of cleaned-up sediment. And in the process, they release dissolved calcium carbonate into the water. 
So the team, led by Kenny Schneider from the Carnegie Institution for Science in California, took some sea cucumbers into the lab and measured just what goes in and what comes out of them. And they basically found that the sea cucumbers are probably responsible for around half of the carbonate dissolution every night on a coral reef. And that's because, as well as emitting this dissolved calcium carbonate from all the coral rubble they've been munching on, they also release acid, and that's what's doing the dissolving. Now, this might sound bad, but in fact, the sea cucumbers are doing a vital job of recycling nutrients back into the ecosystem, and that makes them available to primary producers. And the dissolved calcium carbonate they release also helps to buffer against rising levels of acidity. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but they are actually helping, we think, to buffer the fact that the oceans are getting more acidic because of all the carbon dioxide we're putting into the atmosphere that ends up in the oceans as well, causing the acidity to go up. Um, there's a the video that we're going to link to on our website of um, Kenny talking about his research. Um, and it's, it's quite nice because he basically says how much he likes this study. It was a bit of an accident um, because they sort of found out that the reefs were dissolving and looked around for, to try and figure out what was going on. And he admits that actually he really likes the study, partly because it brings together people from different disciplines. So the geochemists and the biologists who went out to count sea cucumbers and they all brought their expertise to this paper. So have a look because it, uh, it's filmed on one Island as well, so you can get a glimpse of the reefs. And the, I think the really nice thing is it's showing us just the importance of all the species on reefs, even if you might think, oh, well, they're just sitting around not doing much, but they are playing a really important role in the balance of the ecosystem. So we have to look after all those species because um, they're all playing their part. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just about looking after the charismatic big species that we can see and can see what they're doing. It's all, it's all about conserving everything, conserving all of the ecosystem. Well, moving down into the deep sea, um, I've got a story about deep sea vents, one of my favourite subjects. You get all kinds of weird and wonderful creatures down there. And a team from the University of Southampton and the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton have found new deep sea vents known as black smokers after the black mineral rich water that they belch out that are five kilometres down in a trench just off the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean and also a host of new species living around them. Now, the vents are almost a kilometre deeper than any other deep-sea vents that we've found, and one of them is spewing out a plume of this mineral-laden water over a kilometre up into the sea, which is quite extraordinary. And um, the team sent an unmanned sub down to the vents to observe them and also bring back any samples of life that they found down there. Because despite the estimated temperature of the water coming out of these vents at about 450 degrees C and the crushing pressures that you get at that depth... It's not a lifeless landscape. The marine biologists, led by Dr John Copley, found a new species of shrimp clustering around the vents. They've called it Rimicaris hybisae, and it has no eyes, but it does have a light-sensing organ on its back, which might possibly help the shrimp navigate their way around in the dim glow that actually comes from the black smokers themselves. And it might come in handy for manoeuvring around their neighbours because the shrimp were found in huge clusters with over 2,000 individuals per square metre. At another of the vents on Mount Dent, which is a huge undersea mountain, so it's not just on land that we get mountains, you get them under the sea as well, yet more new species were found. They found a snake-like fish, more shrimp and an amphipod as well, which is a type of crustacean. And finding vents on an undersea mountain at all is actually very unusual. The Van Dam Vent Field, as the researchers named it on Mount Dent, uh, that's after the geochemist Karen Van Dam, not after the actor Jean-Claude Van Dam, 
Uh, it's the first of its kind to be discovered, and uh, it's led Dr. Doug Connolly, another of the paper's authors, to suggest that deep sea vents may actually be more common than we thought, and that that might explain how the species that live around these hydrothermal vents uh, could have spread to other vents far away. Because it's always been a bit of a mystery how you have all these species at different vents who, which are kind of similar, and you kind of think, how on earth did they get across the kind of barren expanses of sea in order to move around but obviously if the vents are more common than we thought then they perhaps wouldn't have to travel so far in order to get to a new suitable living site and it just seems at the moment there's so many new discoveries coming out of the deep sea it's almost like every other day there's new species and new discoveries from these these deep vent systems it's just it's really exciting time i think for for ocean science and uh, oh yes and rimacaris don't forget we had that as one of our critters of the month i think a different species but that blind shrimp was uh, tim shank's uh, critter of the month a few months ago so that's on the website too check it out well finally for news this month i've got just the most fantastic story. I don't know if you've come across this one yet, but if you haven't, you've got to see it. It's the Vimic Octopus. Hooray! Yes, you might remember we had him. Uh, this chap was one of our 12 critters of Christmas a while ago. Thormoctopus Mimicus. This is just the most brilliant creature. It puts on this eye-catching performance um, as they put on these elaborate behaviours and coloration to mimic a huge range of of poisonous species, including sea snakes and lionfish, and that by co-opting these fearsome reputations of other animals, they can startle predators and swim about in the open, even though they themselves are soft, vulnerable and harmless. Well, now scuba divers have spotted another species that mimics the mimic. This is just brilliant. The black marble jawfish isn't new to science, but for the first time it's been spotted hanging out with a mimic octopus. Well, the jawfish has similar brown and white patterns as the octopus. And as you can see, if you take a look at the video filmed by Godehart Kopp from the University of Göttingen in Germany, that the little fish is really difficult to spot um, among the octopus's tentacles. And the octopus really doesn't seem to notice, doesn't seem to care about this at all. Well, this is the first known case of mimicry in jawfish, and it's published this month in the Journal of Coral Reefs. And we've put a link to that brilliant video on our website, so make sure you have a look for yourself and see if you can spot the fish. Yeah, I think my favourite mimicry of the mimic octopus is where it mimics a flatfish, where it scoops all its tentacles together into a line and then flaps away across the seabed like a flatfish. It's absolutely amazing. Well, don't forget you can find out more about all of our news stories from this month at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Making waves about the underwater world. This is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and me, Sarah Castor-Perry. Well, we heard earlier in the show about BirdLife International's work in setting up conservation areas for seabirds across the globe. And that work relies on data collected in the field by researchers about where the birds live, their migration routes and how they use different parts of the ocean. Well, to find out more about what goes on in the field and how seabirds are studied, I caught up with Andy Wood from the British Antarctic Survey. He's just got back from spending three months on Bird Island in South Georgia, where he studies the most impressive flyers on the planet, the wandering albatross. Their wings are the largest that glide through the skies today at around three metres or nine feet wide. And Andy told me how he goes about studying these giant birds. The way you study them is carefully. I think it's the best way of saying it because, yes, you've got a bird there with a wingspan of um, three, four metres. Something to give you an idea of the size of it. And if you think of the size of a swan and it's slightly bigger than that and you've got to keep that under control if you're going to put some mark on it like a ring or or some other device on it. So, yeah, you 
treat them with respect, but we've got marked populations of birds at Bird Island, that's down at South Georgia, going back to the 1950s, late 1950s. So well, we've been doing it for a few years. Not me personally, but British Antarctic Survey and others have been doing it for quite a lot of years now. And what sort of things are you attaching to them? Tracking devices, tags? Yes, all of those. Um, the, the basic thing for birds is usually a metal ring, and that's what we started off with, a metal ring. Um, and then uh, we moved to uh, using a plastic ring, because that allows us to identify the bird without disturbing it too much. Birds at Bird Island are very, very tolerant of people. Um, so you can walk up very close to them and they don't really worry that you are there. So with a plastic ring with a, with a, a number on it, we can read those and just walk around the island and see the birds. Um, and that helps with our perspective, we don't have to handle birds and the birds don't get stressed out by our presence. So, yeah, we've, we've put rings on the birds and then we've also moved on to other devices. Um, so we've put um, satellite transmitters, which allows us to follow them when they're not on the island because clearly we can only look at the parts of their, their breeding cycle when, when, when they're actually on the island and nesting and feeding chicks. And so we've put satellite transmitters on them. We've put other smaller devices to to collect um, basically where they go around the world. And where they go is all around the Southern Ocean. And with the tags, the uh, the rings, is that the sort of information you're getting from that, uh, which individuals are breeding together, how many chicks they're having, how long they live, that sort of thing? Yes, again, all of those. We have um, a database, as I say, um, this started off in uh, late 1950s. We have a database of all the um, birds at Bird Island and are still coming back to Bird Island. Um, and we know the history of their partners um, and whether they've changed partners over the years and what ch- if they produce any chicks, have the chicks come back again. So, yes, we've got a, a full life history of all the birds at Bird Island. And what are your conclusions from this kind of data? Are we seeing any changes in their movements, changes in their breeding success? It takes a long, long time to build up information on a bird. I mean, to just give you some idea of how long these birds live, we've had birds ringed at Bird Island as adults in the 1950s and they're still coming back again. So they're 50-odd years old at least. So we've got a long-lived species that breeds, if successful, only every other year. So it produces a chick, hopefully, every two years. Um, and from this, um, we've found out that the, uh, the population is actually declining. And putting all our other studies together, um, it's been found that it's long-line fishing that's causing the major problem with this species. So lots of other people um, are trying to work on this particular problem from the fisheries aspect of it, but we're monitoring the, the long-term population trends of, say, the wandering albatrosses, and I'm afraid it's been on a gradual decline um, since the uh, 1970s. And I think perhaps people might not really understand how it is that something that's designed to catch fish will end up catching seabirds. So how exactly do the albatrosses get caught by these long lines? OK, I mean, a long line, basically, as the, the words might suggest, is a long line of hooks, um, and they are baited hooks, uh, quite often just to catch tuna or those sorts of fish, uh, and they are streamed behind a ship. Now, if you can imagine, there's a time between the, the hook and the baits coming off the back of the ship and it disappearing into the water and out of the reach of a bird, and it's that time period that's critical because the bird thinks, ah, there's a free meal here, 
Um, unfortunately, the free meal is attached to a hook and the hook then disappears down into the sea and that's the end of your albatross. So are there any sort of practical conservation measures to kind of counteract this sort of bycatch issue? Oh, yes, there are many, many um, things that are being put into practice in, if you like, regulated fisheries. Um, where, where the fisheries are well controlled, yes, there are lots of things they can do um, to stop the bycatch of birds on, on long lines. Um, so they can put um, streams behind the ships, they can make the, hopefully make the, uh, the bait sink fast. So, yeah, there, there are lots and lots of things that, that are being done. Uh, the problem is not all fisheries will put these into action. And it's the unregulated fisheries probably that are causing the most problems these days. You work on Bird Island, and I suppose it's aptly named because it's not just the albatrosses that breed there. There's all kinds of seabirds that you see there. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I mean, the, the, the wandering albatrosses there, there's about... Um, with about um, eight, eight, eight to nine hundred pairs there now, but so that's a relatively small number of birds. There are thousands of black-browed albatrosses and grey-headed albatrosses, and um, other species such as uh, giant petrels, um, blue petrels, uh, white-chinned petrels. I, I could go on. So that there are there are many, many, many different species of birds at Bird Island, and I, I should mention the penguins as well. I suppose <laughs> we can't forget the penguins. <laughs> so is it a, an important? area for seabird conservation is it a protected area it is a protected area the south georgia government designated a site of special scientific interest so they restrict who can go there uh, so yes it's, it's a very important area and particularly that it's rat free on south georgia the whalers brought along um, rats and the rats killed an awful lot of, of wildlife and um, particularly the burrowing petrels uh, Bird Island has been rat-free and has never had any rats, so we've got all the, the burrowing petrels and um, the endemic species, such as the South Georgia pipit, which is quite an interesting small passerine bird that you perhaps wouldn't expect to see in a, on a sub-Antarctic island. And are you hopeful that some of these conservation strategies like the managed fisheries and augmenting the longliners so this, that they work differently, sink faster, are you hopeful that that might help slow the decline of albatross numbers? hopeful uh, whether it will actually uh, I mean, and how long the effect um, might take to, to come back into the into the bird populations yeah I mean all we can do is be be positive and you know hope that yes this will have an effect um, but as I say for a long for a long-lived species it's going to take a long time before that is going to show back in the, in the populations of Bird Island um, and unfortunately if the current trends carry on we're going to have no no wandering albatrosses at Bird Islands in sort of 30 or 40 years. That was Andy Wood from the British Antarctic Survey introducing the wandering albatrosses of Bird Island in South Georgia. Um, when I spoke to him, he had literally got off a plane, I think, the day before. So I, it's just obviously winter is the time of year in the northern hemisphere where you then go to the southern hemisphere to do all your field work because it's summer, well, summer down there. So it's obviously a little bit easier to do your work down there than uh, their, their deep, horrible winters. I have always wondered what it must be like to spend the winter down in Antarctica. I'm not sure I want to find out for myself, but extraordinary things nonetheless. Well, that brings us almost to the end of this episode of Naked Oceans. But before we go, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. Here's Critter of the Month. My name's Heather Mason-Jones. I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Tampa, Florida. And the species that I chose was one that actually has fascinated me since I was a kid, and it's not seahorses, <laughs> despite the fact that I've worked on seahorses for my career. The group that I've actually been fascinated with forever is cuttlefish. 
really, I think I first ran across them in Jules Verne, uh, reading excerpts of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's a chapter in there talking about the attack by this large, scary cuttlefish creature. And I think for me, as a kid reading this, it was like, oh my goodness, this... <laughs> This is the scary, horrible organism. I could not imagine a fish doing this scary, awful thing to this big old ship. So from that point forward, it's just something that kind of captured my imagination. And I got increasingly interested in as a kid. And of course, really didn't spend any time observing them or interacting with them at all until an adult, because they aren't found in uh, North and South America. They're actually found other places in the world, but they're absent from our coastline, which is actually a relatively unusual thing, considering there's 120 species in the rest of the world. That was another part of their allure was that there were this fantastic creature that was common elsewhere, and yet it wasn't found on the coastline that I grew up in. Cuttlefish have a very unusual way of being. They've got this elaborate camouflage mechanism that allows them to not just match the color of their background with their chromatophores. They also have the ability to change the texture of their skin to make it look either smooth or to have it look like it's got little tufts of algae off of the surface of it. Walking up to a fish tank and actually looking at it and thinking that you're seeing a bunch of rocks on the bottom and actually realizing that these are actually organisms that are matching the background completely and then spending time trying to get them to interact with you. You can actually use your fingers and the front of a tank to pretend to have the tentacles of the cuttlefish and actually encourage the cuttlefish on the other side of the glass to uh, react to you as if you were an aggressor. And so when you do that, these rocks change to these elaborately colored stripes spotted organisms that are no longer cryptic. They're incredibly obvious in the tank, and you can actually see the waves of color moving along the sides of their bodies, and it looks like there's just all of this emotion running over the surface of this organism because you can see these waves of reddish coloration and other kinds of colors across their surface and watch them interact with you across the glass and also interact with each other. I mean, they have elaborate mate choice mechanisms. Males compete for access to females and um, have these bright colorations that they use to engage with the females. And so they're a very interesting and unique species that has this very cryptic lifespan that also has this kind of very elaborate showy coloration as well. That was Heather Mason-Jones from the University of Tampa in Florida telling us about her lifelong obsession with those masters of disguise, the cuttlefish. And you can listen to lots more ocean experts picking their top critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's all we've got time for for Naked Oceans this month. A big thank you to Ben Lassels, Andy Wood and Heather Mason-Jones. And until next time, you can find us on Twitter at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. And as always, you'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.